On today's show, we have Ryan Birkin, the founder and CEO of Teller Finance. We're going to discuss details about the project, funding, team, along with any plans on the roadmap. Teller is an algorithmic credit risk protocol built to enable the creation of decentralized lending markets that can offer unsecured loans. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Why don't you start by giving us a brief background about yourself and how you got started here? Yeah, Joe, thank you so much for having me. Pumped to be here and share our story with the audience. We got started really exploring the world of DeFi as it is today, but it was back in 2017, 2018, where there really weren't many users. If you go back to the even the end of 2018, Augur was like the one application that was live at the time. And there were about 500 users on the platform. So in the early days, I was always just intrigued and researching of how DeFi could evolve to impact the global economy. But it was hard to really predict what would happen with DeFi. I started building out a project called Fabrics, which was an infrastructure project for the crypto space at large. The idea was that we could take current infrastructure technology and plug that into mainstream businesses and figure out ways that we can take the blockchain infrastructure and make it usable. But I kept running into this issue set of the complexity needed to get into the space and really wanted to dive deeper into this problem of attributing value to end users before they need to buy into the system. A lot of crypto today is about buying into the system. You buy Ethereum, you can stake Ethereum, you can use it. You buy an NFT, then you're a part of the community. There's no real function where you can get access to value without being in the community yet. So that's what I'd always had my mind focused on. And at the end of 2019, we ended up releasing a prototype called Zero Collateral. The idea was you could go from a borrowing system similar to a compound or a maker, and as you're repaying over time, your interest or other collateral associated with your future loans could go down and you can eventually get to zero collateral. But the reality was that didn't solve the bigger problem of how we could bring brand new people into the space. How could we get someone who has maybe a FICO score today in the US, or maybe they've been having a relationship with a specific bank in another country for some amount of time and use that financial relationship that they've developed with the traditional world in crypto. So that was where Teller was really born. And our vision is to become this reputation-based lending market. Today, we have a live product. Uh, that product allows you to either connect a bank account. Currently, we support any bank account in the States. So if you have Chase, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, you can connect that bank account and get access to a loan in DeFi. And there's other ways to do it as well. But that was kind of the journey of how we got here. And there's a really big market for this next unlock that we think DeFi will be able to enable. Now, when you say reputation-based and connecting bank accounts, it's kind of similar at all to like a no-doc loan when it comes to real estate where you could just hand in bank statements and they kind of model that out on what you can afford for affordability? Exactly. So in building out a more complex system in DeFi, when you're focusing on some of the algorithms, we actually think it's beneficial to be rather simple. Looking at specifically, or what is the loan to value? What is the underlying balance of this bank account? Looking at transaction history, really simple methods that banks use today in underwriting loans can be used in the same way in DeFi. What DeFi comes in to do is replace liquidity. So now you have an open, global, transparent source of liquidity to be provided into any type of market that you can have an algorithm associated with it for. Will the users have the ability to, I guess, use it on a personal bank account side and business bank account side for especially those that are self-employed and might not have that credit built up? Yep, that's live today. So you can use it for very specific use cases. And this is kind of how we see DeFi rolling out with unsecured lending. It's going to be primarily use case based. And it's at first really focused on businesses, actually. Today, you have Maple Finance that's live and growing. I think they just past about 200 million in AUM. They've really been doing a great job at running a decentralized, unsecured business kind of flow of money where you have, you have an underwriter come in, they assess the business and the actual pool then is able to lend out capital to that business. Another one is TruFi that's been doing business loans. 
both of them are focusing on institutions. And I believe at, at first, it's primarily crypto-based institutions. So that's the start or what we think is the unlock of use cases. With Teller today, you as a consumer can actually come in and connect your consumer-based bank account or your small business account or your sole proprietorship. And that bank account is going to be assessed just like it would be in the traditional world. And you can have a unsecured loan. But the use case of that loan today is very limited. You can use it in DeFi to pretty much yield farm. So it's very specific to the DeFi space today. Over time, we think this is going to unravel as people start treating the reputation in the DeFi system as something real. I've heard reputation also based on wallet activity, right? And so I think some of these guys accumulate lots of wallets over time, right? Would that be something that they have to plug in all their wallets to kind of get a score across all of them? Or how will that work? Yeah, I think the wallet problem is really interesting because that's a very easy way to have Sybil attack. If you have so many wallets, a user could build up credit on one wallet and default and move on. So the space is going to have to come to some type of consensus around what a identity is and what it means. What is an identity for business? What is it for a person? And the easiest ways we can start off by doing it is by actually tying in your traditional identity. So if you talk to users in the DeFi space, I think there's a lot of ideas about privacy and anonymity. But the reality is people are okay with sharing some type of data as long as it just remains private. Not that it has to be fully anonymous. People are comfortable proving who they are in order to get access to value. And that's kind of the way we look at the world that the on-start of consumer lending in DeFi is going to start with those who are open to being either KYC'd or connecting something from the real world with their identity. Otherwise, you just have this issue where they could go spit up 10 different wallets. <laughs> but that also plays into the other piece, which is what if you could use these wallets that you've actually done things with in DeFi to get access to capital? And that's definitely something that's being explored. I think you see Money. they're working on a way to build a DeFi-based passport where they look at your transaction history in DeFi and can say, oh, this is a score of someone that's highly leveraged, or this is a score of someone that pays back their loans on time before there are any, any risk of getting liquidated. These types of applications we'll see developing in the future, but it will continue to be hard unless you have a single point of identity. All right. Well, why don't we go into the team that's driving the success here, right? And kind of uh, let's start there with, you know, where you guys located and how big is the team currently? Absolutely. So we are distributed as a team. We're a team that came up during COVID. So it was actually perfect timing. <laughs> there was no office to go into. <laughs> and because of that, it's actually allowed us a lot of perspective in terms of global markets, because while the team is based in the States primarily, we have people in Canada, in Latin America, across the seas in Europe. And it's given us a lot of different viewpoints of how credit is built. And it opened our eyes to seeing how the world is going to evolve in DeFi, where building up credit is going to be about different places that you've lived in, the people you've interacted with, those institutions you've interacted with. And because of that, our team has been kind of shaped around this more global narrative of credit. We have a pretty interesting team kind of structure where a lot of teams in the space are primarily focused on solidity. They're focused on what you can do with smart contracts. For us, we have to bridge the gap. So we have our team that's core focused on solidity. We also have our team that's focused on credit. And this is that next kind of generation that's really going to be powering all the underpinnings of credit in the DeFi ecosystem. So we straddle both kind of sides of the spectrum. And because of that, we'll be able to really bridge the gap between what is DeFi today and where does DeFi fit into FinTech tomorrow? So going off your jurisdiction thing, what came to mind is, as you explore across the globe, what areas are you seeing that is most suited for your business model at this time and why? I think the mission of crypto has always been that we can globalize so that anyone can use it from day zero. <laughs> yeah. But the reality being, there's not that many people even using DeFi. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. So... Most people are literate, they're fluent, or at least they've made some money in the space. If you look at the stats, the number of borrowers on Aave or Compound is around 100,000. Of that, 1% of those users make up like 90% of the volume. It's like a thousand walls make up most of the borrowing activity. And to us, that really screams like, okay, the first users are coming from likely first world countries or have some type of financial affluence to date. And this is kind of how we're looking to play into the DeFi ecosystem, starting at places that already have some type of credit system. 
and figuring out how, how do we work with the institutions that are already in place? Because that's where people believe in their identity today. Otherwise, they would do that model that I spoke of, which they would just spin up many wallets and use many wallets. But building credit in other markets or emerging markets is a really fascinating industry. It's been evolving in the last like five to 10 years, where in places in Latin America or Africa, you actually have credit based on telecom payments. So some telecom companies will lend users a phone and they'll just track if the user's paying back the payments on the phone itself. The company makes money by issuing out loans in the future to that user. So the user gets access to capital and now they're paying interest and it becomes a very profitable cycle for the businesses. And the user actually gets to build credit completely different to how we do it in the States. In the States, it's all about what bank are you at? What happened with your credit card payments? Like the, the US credit system can see every single transaction that we make. So what we believe is there's gonna be this kind of mix of the two systems coming into play where you're gonna have a very fluid identity in the DeFi space, depending on like which nationality you're in, which country you're in. And it's gonna probably start with those that have already a structured credit system, like the States, like Europe. Got it. So you mentioned the telecom. Is that something you guys see that you're going to be able to tap into kind of for verification also, or is there walls there? Yeah, uh, no, they're actually very friendly companies that are open to working with this. It's really the balancing act of how much are they going to step into the DeFi ring and how much are DeFi individuals going to step into the fintech ring. Got it. And is there any current jurisdiction hurdles or obstacles from uh, compliance at this time? Yeah, I, I think compliance is always at top of mind. The primary thing that you want to think about when building a consumer-based app is making sure the user has full transparency into the deal that they're being offered. So that is the user knows exactly what the interest rate is. There's no hidden fees. The user knows what collateral ratios need to be there, if so, or what is the concept of collateral in that concept. With DeFi today, you have over-collateralization, but collateral also comes into play of mortgages, where the collateral is in the back end. It's the asset you purchase. Um, they also need to know like liquidations and the default periods. So the primary piece with compliance is first, making sure it's fully transparent to the user. They know what's happening. The second is then understanding in the States, at least it's state by state. So it's every state has a different usury rate. And that is like the max amount of interest you can charge a user. So because of that, you want to also be careful of like, hey, if we know the users in this place, how are we charging them interest? And how does that evolve over time? So that's kind of we, why we believe in a world of progressive decentralization, where this type of unsecured lending starts somewhere where the user, if you know where they are, is fitting into some sort of compliance kind of mechanism that's already set up. But as things become DAOs or they become governed by protocol owners or token owners, then you can have a more fluid system. At that point, it's really based on the collective of the community. Who takes the responsibilities for like loan origination licensing? Is that like the TradFi partners that are you're working with or? Yeah, I, that's a really good question because loan origination comes into play with all of DeFi, anywhere where you're getting access to capital. The argument today for DeFi liquidity is that the smart contract is actually the one originating the loan itself. The way we've structured our system, the user is the one that's getting access to the data. They're the ones that have risk assessments, giving them a score on their information. And then the user is the one initiating the transaction to take out a loan. So because of that, the provenance of, of loan origination is actually on the smart contract itself because it's so user-focused. This is one of the core kind of primitives of the compliance that's been set up to protect users. It's that if they know what's going on and they're the ones originating it, you're more flexible in what you can do. Now, that doesn't mean that banks or other loan originators won't come into the system, but in the way we initially set up the smart contracts, they don't have to at the start. Granted, we believe that kind of over time, they probably will in following the current compliance models. So have you guys, I mean, obviously you guys have been operating for a little while. So how have you been able to fund uh, your operations up to date? Yeah, absolutely. So we were funded by a couple of VCs in the space, notably Framework Ventures, Verify Capital, Mom 11, really awesome hands down. DeFi investors who really understand the structure of the space and how it's going to evolve over time. And that really got us off, off the ground. That was something where we went from a concept, really this prototype of zero collateral, to take into something that could bridge the gap and unlock DeFi for the rest of the universe who can come and start borrowing and start playing in this activity. 
No, I appreciate that. And how they've been, uh, I guess, very generous with their time and obviously been helping the success of the project so far. Absolutely. I think key for any founder to really think about when you're looking for that type of support and funding is who you're bringing on. And you want to make sure that it's really clear that those people coming on, you're going to be able to work with for the long term. And they're also people that really understand the space you're looking at. So we're really fortunate to have those investors along our side. How does Teller actually make money on each transaction or whatever? Yeah. So uh, today we're an open source protocol. We don't. We take the same stance as Compound or Uniswap, where at the start, we're really just building open source software and monetization will come in in the bigger picture. And do you have any idea where that might be in the future or what? So we're looking at the model that Compound or Aave have, where they have some type of loan origination fee. It's like when the, the user takes out a loan, they pay some amount of money. That's definitely doable there. You know, can we kind of walk down the path of the user, right? And what will ultimately happen for somebody that wants to take out a loan? Where do they start? So if you are a new user coming into the platform, you have three different ways to take out a loan. You can either connect a bank account, you can collateralize, so use some type of collateral or crypto native asset, or use an NFT. So actually, this NFT you're looking at behind me can be utilized in taking out a loan against it. So the user would simply come to the platform and they fill out a form that's really similar to like a rocket mortgage or like a traditional fintech kind of application. It's like the asset you want to borrow, the amount of funds you want to borrow worth that asset, and then you have those three options. So if I'm a user that hasn't been into DeFi or crypto, I can simply connect my bank account and I'll get access to a loan based on some amount, my bank balance and some other ratios. And then me as a user, I just accept that loan itself and it gets transported to an escrow wallet. So like I was saying before, the use of the loan is rather limited and you can use a loan to go yield farm and DeFi, but it is the first access that some of these people have to DeFi-based loans without actually putting up collateral. And then there's the other ways of you could put up collateral and there's more use cases or you could stake an NFT. Let's go into the bank account. I mean, what information is it required for the user to input? I mean, is it the regular, like any bank application from social address? What are the fields that need to be done? Even less. We're integrated with Plaid. Plaid is a company that connects many bank accounts. So they have about 2,000 different financial institutions they support. The user actually just logs in. So you just take your uh, username and password, you log in through this portal. And then the data gets run through the credit risk algorithms, and then the user gets their final loan terms. So you're never sharing PII, you're never sharing SSN. The user is really just logging in, credentials, run through risk assessment, and they're passed over to the consumer. So currently, what are the available loan amounts? Currently, you can get a loan up to 25000 So basically, you can hook up bank account and put your info, and you might be able to get approved up to 25000 at this point. Yep. And kind of how is that? underwriting process determining who created that? So we created the initial one. We actually call it an arrowhead. Uh, it's our arrowhead CRA. It's kind of very similar to our logo. Logo's in the shape of an arrowhead. Really moving the DeFi industry forward. And that was our initial way to say you could create a simplistic algorithm based on your bank balance and recent transaction history and then final loan to debt ratio or loan to balance ratio. And that's utilized in determining both interest rate and collateral needed. As long as the amount you're requesting is within some ratio of the balance that you have in your bank account, they'll be approved for that without collateral. And then there's an interest that's associated with it. And right now, what are we seeing as the loan terms, like from an interest rate and a time frame? So like, like we were talking about, um, if we do know that state that the user is coming in from, they're capped. It reads the state and it says, what is the cap on that interest rate? And then you'll get, you'll actually get a smaller loan, but it will be capped on that interest rate, just fitting into all the state required laws, even though the whole system itself is decentralized in terms of smart contracts, operating, lending and borrowing. So the users are going to see somewhere between probably a three to 8% interest rate. And typically is that a uh, term loan, an interest only, or what are the options? Yeah. So it's actually just a balloon. The current loan duration is up to 60 days. Cool. What's the benefit of this versus going to my traditional bank where I have a trusted party, the rates are at historical lows, 
they're probably sending me offers right now for $100,000 every few weeks, <laughs> right? And so kind of maybe go and explain that. What are the differences and maybe how you guys are going to become more efficient in the future? I think this is a story for all of DeFi where the question is, why, why should I use the system? If I could collateralize my stocks today on Robinhood or E-Trade, why should I go to Compound or Aave to collateralize? And the first value proposition is because you're in control. That is not the case with most of the fintech. You're logging in to some user interface and you're completely putting your trust in the intermediary. In this world, first, you are in control of the experience. Second, you're doing it right from your laptop and you can see everything that happens in terms of like the actual lending activity or the borrowing activity. You can read the actual transaction history on chain. But I think the biggest unlock for DeFi is actually not at the user level, it's actually at the business level. What DeFi did is take smart contracts and say, hey, we can pull assets together cheaper, better, and more transparent with a full audit trail. That is going to lower the barrier of entry for new startups coming in the space or new fintechs 100 to 1,000 fold. Every fintech today has to work with a partner bank or acquire a bank. Here, you no longer have to do that. So not only the startup costs much less, the actual ability to get access to capital is so much lower that it's going to be a business function of why DeFi really gets adopted into the back end of these financial institutions today. The consumer will benefit because the consumer is going to see lower interest rate, lower fees, better borrowing ability, but they're not necessarily going to notice the reasons why. It's going to be the businesses that are benefiting because they get to scale and grow faster. And who are the counterparties on the other side that are providing the balance sheet or liquidity for these loans? And how are they underwriting them? DeFi users. So it's DeFi lenders today. If you look at what DeFi lenders are underwriting, it's primarily smart contract risk and then the platform risk. So almost all of DeFi to date has been over collateralized. Whether that's like a Uniswap liquidity pool, that's a compound or Aave lending market. Everything has been a world where there are assets backing these assets. The next generation of DeFi-based lending will take a more sophisticated lender because you'll want to look at what type of consumers am I lending out to? Are these individuals with FICOs above a certain range? Am I lending to a more distressed market? Is this an emerging market where some of the data points are unclear? It will definitely bring in a new generation of lenders in the space, but I think we're also going to have a more fair pricing of risk because now you have underwriters, lenders coming in from a global market where today it may be fragmented or limited in the traditional sense of lending. Got it. And so do you think with them coming into the market, is that going to require a lot more, I guess, KYC and everything on behalf of the borrower? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. I think it's <laughs> going to be dependence on those markets. So those more mainstream lenders, they're going to want the KYC and they're going to want a KYC-based pool. That doesn't mean that all types of consumer lending will be KYC necessarily. Uh, there's an example with Amex. I believe it was Amex. It may have been another credit card company, but I know there, it was also with Ant Financial, which is owned by Alibaba, where they would give out credit cards with really, really small limits on them. So they would say, hey, here's a credit card with a hundred or $200 limit, go spend it. And they would monitor like what the user did. And this could be even without checking any credit history. So if the user went to go withdraw money out of an ATM, they'd say, oh, we don't know what's happening. It's something, a black box. We're going to put that as a strike against them. So we'll lower their credit limit for future months. But if the user went to go buy groceries or do something that they can see and is transparent and is marked as quote unquote, like positive behavior, then they'll actually increase that credit limit. So there are ways that you can build credit over time if DeFi wants to start small, where you're not jeopardizing a massive liquidation of the pool, but you can build credit without the need for pure, hard KYC or, or KYB policies. And now I think you mentioned that the uh, liquidity is coming from DeFi users, correct? Yes. Now, some people would say that a lot of the users are expecting higher returns within DeFi, right? So how do you attract lenders there to kind of come in that single digit range? And how does that capital flow with the market when something's in style and out of style, whether they're flowing from Bitcoin to the sideline and how does that affect you? So there's a couple answers to break down here. Uh, one is just general like lending rates that we're seeing. If you look at Compound or Aave, the lending rates have been single digit for some time for just stable coins in general. And I think we're going to see as these markets mature 
that it's going to be pretty difficult to sustain 100% plus a yield. <laughs> I really think that's just a case of a bull market today. That doesn't mean you're not going to be earning you know, governance tokens or utility tokens. But over time, we're going to see rates start to average. Compound or Aave, they really work like the Libra rate. And the Libra rate's relatively low. It's usually between either around a percent. It's like a little bit below or a little bit above a percent. The Libor rate for the listeners is the bank-to-bank lending rate. So a bank is going to secure the loan itself based on their own bank activity, and other banks are happy borrowing or lending within that bank system. That's what Compound or Aave feel like in the lower digits of interest rate. We just have premiums currently because of governance tokens and because of smart contract risks that users are facing. But the next unlock, while those two markets have been based on liquidations from, like you're saying, Bitcoin, kind of the ebbs and flows of users in the market, the next world of unsecured lending just won't be based so much on volatile assets. It really will be around just stable coins, either USDC or DAI or Tether. And that's where the grunt of new growth is going to come in, I think, even during the bear market. So when you start thinking of general consumer lending, the rates are, as you said, it's hard to get above the 10% range. If you go to Maple right now, Maple Finance, you can actually see the rates. I believe they fluctuate in the single digits. And most of the users are actually earning yield because of the governance token that you can farm through liquidity mining. But that next kind of wave is going to be based on services. So there's different services that could be provided that can unlock higher interest rates. An example of that is like buy now, pay later. So with buy now, pay later, uh, this is something that a firm is one of the leaders in. Afterpay is another leader. Afterpay actually just got acquired for about $29 billion, I think. Insane acquisitions that are happening in the buy now, pay later space and crazy consumer growth. Because for consumers, it's a no-brainer. Buy it now, pay it back in, let's say, three installments in the next three months, and there's no interest associated with it. But on the business, uh, for the lender, the lender is taking a cut of the merchant fees. So the lender will take anywhere between 2 to 8% of the back-end purchase from the merchant. The merchant's happy because it's bringing them more users. Lender's happy because they're earning way more in volume than they would if they were just simply lending out the funds. So if you kind of extrapolate that, just earning 2% on a buy now, pay later system that is monthly. So the user buys it start of the month, pays back at the end of the month. That would be a 24% APR or interest that the pool would be earning at that point. If you kind of extrapolate it to the larger numbers, you could see how this could reach places of like 100% APY for the lenders without ever talking about governance or yield farming. So there's going to be use cases. It's just hidden in business models today that traditional companies are using. So I know treasury management is kind of becoming a topic, right? Amongst a lot of different projects, DAOs, et cetera. Do you see this as a way for them to have something stable within their portfolio while still having yield and, you know, placing that with you? I think what we're seeing is like DeFi 2.0 is projects that then integrate treasury management like directly into the protocol. We've seen that with Olympus DAO. So they've been super successful at this new kind of business model where they're locking up assets in the treasury And then every new OM or OM token is backed by the assets in the treasury. We also have NounsDAO. So this is more, it's more NFT based, but with NounsDAO, they do a daily auction of NFTs and the users can bid on those NFTs. And if they get the NFT, the ETH they transfer goes into the treasury and it's there for treasury management based on proposals. This is definitely coming. So this is something we've definitely thought of. It's really going to be a world where users are going to have to start taking ownership of this type of treasury management. I think we're going to see a play in the DAO space, kind of like public organizations. So places where today you may be raising funds for a nonprofit and those funds will be used by administration. It's going to be the same system. You just replace the administration with the governance token holders. And then the administration will either delegate out funds or use funds and give them to centralized companies or companies that are going to be able to actively execute with them. And then the companies just have some contract and they return funds at a certain period of time. So that's kind of how we envision the future of treasury management evolving and something we're definitely keen on. So how do these liquidity providers underwrite the loan pools in which they're participating in and what access do they have to certain data? Their access is going to be specific to the risk algorithm itself. So we want to make risk algorithms public so anyone will be able to view them. They, of course, have an off-chain. They're not on-chain because they're handling 
sensitive data. And we want the users to have their data remain private. So what the, they'll be looking at are the risk algorithms, the public data. So if you're looking at, let's say, Twitter as one of the use cases or on-chain information, anyone can run the risk assessment with that public data. And that's where we think kind of the, the grunt of the completely transparent risk algorithms will start with information that anyone can look at. But then for the more private information like banking or your credit score in the traditional world, the Web2 world, that's where you're going to have really simplistic models. So it's going to be something saying like, okay, if we know the user has $100,000 in a bank account, we're very comfortable lending out $10,000 as long as we don't see other debt. Or if the user has a FICO above a certain range, we're very comfortable lending out to that. That's likely how these markets will evolve because a core tenant is keeping users' information private. We want to make sure that's built in natively because really that's how we get to evolve past the current system of finance today where users just port over their information. So those different markets are where we think risk and underwriting is going to evolve into. So when someone's taking out a loan, are they typically, you know, are they given USDC or what are they taking out? Yeah, we, we think most users are going to want USDC, DAI, stable coins. So basically on a monthly basis, they'll be responsible for making that payment? Yep. And is that on them right now? Or is there currently kind of in the works any type of ACH or somehow automatic payment? Yeah, so right now that's on them. But we do think people will build ACH on ramps to just auto repay. So there, there are partners that we've spoken with that have this functionality. We just want to make sure that it's one of our partners really focused on this. And we totally see these full circle loops. If you look at uh, FinTech today, there's a company called Brex, which runs a startup focused credit card. And for Brex, they'll give you a certain line of credit as a business based on the amount of money you have in the bank account. So they don't do any credit check. They don't do any complex risk algorithm underwriting. They simply say, if you have X amount of dollars in a bank account, we'll give you a line of credit for 10 or 20% of that. And then they just have you authenticate into being able to have that ACH pulled. That ACH is pulled every month and the users kind of forget about it. That's the optimal system. That's good. And so utilizing the bank account method, is there any type of last thing, any type of prepay penalty if you want to pay the loan off early? That's something that we'll be kind of like learning over time. There can be a penalty. We haven't installed that yet. I think these markets are going to figure out where users need to be penalized, where there needs to be a carrot or a stick. And we kind of think this is going to develop with some more core reputation that's embedded into your, your on-chain actions. So one thing to note is like if you do connect some type of KYC or bank account and you in some way have an identifier of yourself associated with your history, there are pretty transparent ways that that can be reported back to either credit agencies or debt collectors in the traditional sense if the user consents to it. And I think that's like the key difference. The user in this DeFi world should be consenting to how they'll be penalized. And they should just know it ahead of time and be able to opt out uh, if they don't want to get access to that type of capital with those type of requirements. Now, you also mentioned uh, the ability to get a loan with the uh, NFT method. Can you kind of explain that? Yeah, absolutely. We believe NFTs are like Rolexes. Like you're going to have your NFT showcasing like, hey, this is my status symbol. I'm in this group. And that's going to be worth something. Like that's a core tenement of reputation. People are more than happy to like have an ENS domain associated with a wallet address, even if it shows a major part of their financial ownership because it's, hey, here's my personality in the crypto space. We wanted to extend that. So today you have places like NFTFi or PawnFi, they're working on ways that you can collateralize NFTs as a peer-to-peer -peer system. We wanted NFTs to function kind of like a home equity line of credit against the home. So in the idea of a, a HELOC, home equity line of credit, you have your home and you're able to get some type of credit line with a home being used as the collateral. We thought NFTs could be used in the same way. And that's something that we're, we have live today. So if you have an NFT, you can stake it and you can actually get a guaranteed amount of money loaned out to you to be utilized. But in the future, what we're looking to do is actually expand that. So today you see the NFT being utilized for these kind of like whitelisted DeFi native liquidity farming applications. In the future, we think these NFTs can work kind of like credit lines where you really just stake it, the money goes to your MetaMask and you continue with your day. So you really get access to the capital just by having an NFT. So basically you're saying like, a, I guess we call it like a revolving credit line. Yep. You pay it off or take out as frequent as you need. Yep. 
And then the user just has monthly repayments they need to hit. If you miss X number of monthly repayments, the NFT can be used as a default collection. So let's go into that. You know, you mentioned debt collectors and default, right? <laughs> what are the consequences when people don't pay back their loan or don't pay back in time? And what happens after that? So for the two kind of examples, in the traditional world, it's going to be very similar to what you experience today. When unsecured loans really do unlock in the space, you're going to have to probably sign off on something that's going to say, hey, my credit will be hit or I will be contacted by a debt collector. And as a user, you're going to care because you don't want your personal history to be affected by some action you're taking. In the crypto space or in the DeFi space where it's more native to the industry and you don't have like an identity, you need to be posting up something. And I think today our minds are so centered around, I need to post up collateral first to get a loan. That may not be the case in the future. So for example, with a buy now, pay later market, you could be buying an NFT now and it just sits in escrow until you repay off the loan. You repay off the loan, you get the NFT, you default, you lose that asset. Kind of like a pawn shop. Like a pawn shop. <laughs> but that's what a mortgage is too, right? You get the home, you're using it, and then you pay it off in 30 years, or 15 years. That's where we see kind of these use cases start to evolve, where if you really don't have a reputation system, you have some asset in the back end that's safe. You know, some of the cheapest capital always comes through... Uh, obviously, the institutions are the banks, right? And they always require the KYC. So back to our conversation, do you think that in order to achieve the lowest rates, that's going to end up being a KYC situation or a full identity disclosure? Unless, So the example with actually buying out pay later is great because you can have zero interest being charged because the lender is making money on the back end. They're making money from the merchant. And then a, a revolving line of credit, it's kind of similar to a credit card. Like you could have zero interest on a credit card for 30 days. You just start paying interest after the 30 days. So there's going to be use cases that don't have interest rates or that have interest rates that are super competitive. And I think you're going to see those start with very crypto native applications. So if you were to compare a personal loan or an unsecured loan to the traditional space at day zero, I think the traditional space will have much better access to the capital much lower interest rates. They, they have the experience doing this. Yep. Whereas in DeFi, if you're going to have loans specific for NFTs, I think a bank would charge you crazy amounts because they don't understand what's going on. Whereas users in DeFi or the lenders in DeFi would say, no, that NFT gets escrowed for a period of time. That's fine. There's no interest we make it on the back end. Just different business models that are more native to the crypto industry. And the default right now, I mean, what happens if it does, just doesn't get repaid? And who's, who's losing there? The NFT owner. So the NFT owner is staking their NFT. And if they default past the grace period time, I believe it's like 60 or 90 days, then the NFT gets transferred to the actual treasury. And on the bank account method? On the bank account method right now, because the use case of the funds are secured, pretty much you can go yield farm and then the funds are returned. There is no penalty today. But if the market were to evolve into something that's really unsecured, then there would be some type of penalty. All right. Oh, man. I think we covered so much. <laughs> I love it. I mean, what else haven't we covered that we want to go over here? I'd love to, to talk about, yeah, kind of these consumer-based credit lines and how this world is going to evolve. I think there's so much that we're going to see in terms of how you're going to pair reputation with these non-fungible tokens. NFTs today, like everything's been so centered around art and it's been centered around speculation of that art. We have a whole world to unlock of non-fungibles that's going to tap into the market that is web two today really like the market for global debt is massive it's like 250 trillion i think real estate makes up like a good portion of it yep and then you have insurance credit cards and then you get to business loans actually surprisingly enough personal loans are like one of the smaller chunks of that debt it's primarily mortgages and then credit cards that people are using today these use cases of consumer credit are going to be made more tangible with non-fungible tokens. I think like the securitization of these assets on chain is going to be crazy unlocks where maybe you have a mortgage today and you'll be able to tokenize it, or maybe you get a new mortgage that is innately tokenized and you can see, or lenders could see the actual repayment history, or they could see how you can securitize it to get a line of credit against it. So that's something that we think is still in the future. We have ways away to get there, but we want to chart the, the path and start proving out the core principles 
So that's something we've been wanting to really showcase with the NFT and showcase a way that, hey, maybe an NFT can get you a line of credit and that line of credit could actually be going up over time if you're a good actor. I mean, what do you think the realistic timeframe of a lot of these real world assets kind of coming on chain? We're seeing it happen today. Uh, so Centrifuge is one of the protocols that is tokenizing real world assets. It will take time though, it, because it, it's very jurisdiction based. Like if you have a real world asset, if you have a home, the, some type of government approval or court approval. I would say in the next four years, we're going to see the start of what will become the underpinnings of the global economy, like the massive global economy. I think in the next four years, a prediction would be that we do start seeing mortgages on chain. We'll probably see the first one on chain, I want to say, in the next two years. And there's going to be more and more companies that just look like fintechs, that just look like a traditional mortgage company, like a rocket mortgage, or they look like a traditional lender, like Lending Club. And they have some type of backend system that just sources liquidity through DeFi. Or maybe they're tokenizing some of their loans with NFTs. And those loans can then be traded as kind of like bonds. That's kind of the world where I think you're going to start to see companies integrated from the fintech side. And then you're going to see DeFi companies that are iterating, experimenting like crazy to try to come up from the like more decentralized DeFi side. What do you see as the biggest obstacles? It's the centralization components. So that's why bridging the gap is so important. Because if you are a DeFi project and you want to do some of the more crazy things we talked about, like you want to roll out credit cards, you want to roll out um, insurance, there's centralization to it. And the question will be, well, if you want this open source and you want it owned by the community, how do you get it to a point where the original team is not in the middle of it? And then it's from the other angle of like, okay, you could take the approach of centralization at the start, plug in DeFi. Well, now you have an uphill battle of you need to make sure you're fitting with all of compliance. Um, you need all the operations to be proper. You need all the bank charters. So there's just two different worlds of kind of battles that both places will face. But I think you're going to see a world where they kind of start coming together, either as a DeFi protocol gets up to a certain point and is able to decentralize and a fintech takes it over as kind of the centralized front end for it. Or you'll see places where there's DeFi native use cases like purchasing NFTs with the buy now, pray later program. And that a DeFi protocol could completely own where fintech doesn't have to come in. Yeah, in the last few months, uh, I think we've just noticed that at least last year or two, is the conversation was let's decentralize everything to now everyone's like, uh, we need some real world services. And now we got <laughs> how to, how do we interact with some of the real world in order to bring those services in? And, you know, how do we need to be formed? And we're kind of trying to figure that out. Yeah, it's, it's not a revolution. Like it's not, a, we're not anarchists anymore. I feel like the crypto ethos of like, we have to rebel has changed. It's almost like the institution said, hey, we're in crypto too. Like, so now we kind of can't ignore them. I think you saw, we saw like PayPal adding crypto at the end of last year. It really started opening the gates. I mean, Visa also bought an NFT. They publicly promoted it. These institutions want to get involved and it's just going to be a dance of like, okay, how far can we lean on the decentralization spectrum and what components do we need to have a nice interface or these more centralized counterparties play? That's good. I mean, you know, talking about the next five years and what's to happen, what are your plans with Teller and what are you guys trying to accomplish? Yeah, I think we really want to plant the flag as creating this type of reputation that's native to the crypto space and unlocking lending ability on top of that. So all of our, our kind of prototypes or products that we've launched to date have had some type of play in that. And what we've learned is adoption is going to take an iterative approach. So for building a type of reputation in this space, it's going to be more complex than just creating some type of algorithmic market that's purely on chain with collateralized assets. And that's just coming into the nature of humans. You really have to understand what people are doing on chain. How do you mitigate malicious actors? How do you enforce penalties if needed? How do you reward users that are good? And that's really where we want to be a primitive in the space where users have access to some type of collateral be that something like an NFT, be that a reputation, where they can use that to get access to capital. And that's something that people could build up over time through their actions, or they could buy into the system. Um, it's kind of an analogy from a primitive level I like to make to Axie Infinity, where Axie has users buy-in at first. It's kind of like you're starting a business, like you own, okay, three Axies. They were like $100 total. And then you play with those Axies and you start earning their SLP token. And this token is now your ability to make money back 
from the original investment as you're engaging with the system. That's kind of how we think these credit-like markets are going to evolve on chain, where you probably will buy in somehow, either by connecting something in the traditional world and risking that to get slashed for hit, or by actually buying some asset and using that as leverage to build up reputation over time. And then people will take into account, oh, they defaulted here, they borrowed here, lent here, then creating really intricate risk algorithms based on that information. So for us, the next five years is really understanding how this pattern and this like history of actions will evolve over time. What do you see as the incentives for long-term users? There's going to be many. So as borrowers, you're going to want to get deeper and deeper into the system. I think the easy thing is to create incentives because just like, I mean, airline miles, credit card points, if I as a user have a credit card that's giving me 3% cash back every time I'm thinking, oh, wow, I spent that, I got three bucks back. Or if I'm on the Coinbase card, um, you're getting 4% back. Kind of people being in the crypto space were thinking, well, if the token goes up in some amount, I actually earn my whole amount back. <laughs> you're actually kind of in somewhat incentivized to use the system because of the rewards. I think the harder part is how do you mitigate people who may you know, open up 100 accounts and try to gamify the whole system. I think the harder thing is mitigating the risk of civil attack, of potential fraud, and how do you mitigate defaults? Because the lenders are who you really do need to protect. The borrowers are getting access to capital. They're happy. You don't need to reward them too much past that. But the lenders do need some sort of understanding of, here's how we mitigate the risks. There's always a borrower out there, right? But you need capital to fill that. So the lenders are definitely play a key role. So what's your thoughts on Teller having a token in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I think our play has always been to focus on open source software. And we want to be a primitive in the space where we can be utilized by protocols, by DAOs, by individuals to build new creative models on top of. So that's why we've really tried focusing on how do we A, bridge the gap, but B, use crypto native cases or use cases of spending, of credit, of lending and borrowing activity, and use that to unlock the next wave of kind of open source products in crypto. So we definitely are looking at the route that Compound, that Aave followed, where you really, really work to build out a market that's based on some type of reputation or credit-based staking, and then unlocks into an open source protocol that the community can really run and take ownership over. All right. And as a co-founder, like, what do you have for other people that are building in this space? And maybe what advice can we leave off for them? I think this is the best time to start building in this space. It's the most exciting time you have as a founder, the intersection of a crazy market of mainstream people that are coming in from this world of just art collection. And the other side, which is institutions and public companies that are now coming to pace with the innovation in blockchain. You have solved the scalability issues because we have layer twos and we have side chains like Polygon or Phantom or Celo. You have Optimism and Arbitrum. There's a way to build for the end consumer now. And this is the best positioning I think any founder will be in is coming in today if they're ever going to make the jump. Because you still are, the industry is still new enough where no one really gets a full grasp. No one has 100% view on the industry. I'd argue that people have at max maybe like a 20% view of what's going on at all times. And you can really carve your name out in something that's meaningful and will power the rest of either DeFi or the NFT space. There's just so much open area for innovation. And as a founder, I'd really focus on places where you feel your product, your vision could touch mainstream. Where if you're working in the NFT space, how can you either be embedded in the world of entertainment or arts today that is hungry for that next revenue stream? Or if you're in DeFi, how could you be looking at the next 100,000 to, to multiple millions of users? Because really today in DeFi, there's just, as I'm saying, not that many borrowers, not that many active users who are doing something outside of just lending. That's where I think founders would be looking in really figuring out that next unlock for the industry at large and for their protocol. I mean, what do you think contributes to the success of protocols that attract the most users versus ones that may not attract users, even though they have a good product? What's interesting is that to date, the user number hasn't mattered. Like all of DeFi today has been based on a system where money mattered way more than the users. 
And you can view that through the revenue that's being generated. The other is the argument of NFTs. Um, if you look at like Bored Apes, they have maybe 5,000, around 5,000 holders. It's really not that many people that hold these NFTs that are participating in the games of today. So for users to really start flooding in, they need access to pretty much low to no gas fees. They need access to ways to start making revenue based on smaller increments of value. And that's going to drive the next wave of users to come into the space. So kind of what we've seen today, I think, in DeFi has been a world where users didn't really matter, like the number of users. It would just matter who and the volume that they were transacting at. The next unlock is going to matter, like the volume of users, who is spending, because you want to mitigate defaults. So obviously, the larger pool of individuals you have, the better probability you have at getting an exact number on your forecast of percentage of defaults. And that's where the user base comes in. But I think it all actually comes with the systems you build. If you're building a system that's giving someone access to capital without them putting it up, you're going to have way more borrowers coming in and you're going to be open to doing lower amounts of capital for those borrowers. So it's more of a spread distribution of users. Whereas if you have an over-collateralized ecosystem and the primary users are those with a lot of assets, you're simply going to have people with a lot of assets. Both can be totally successful in their own right. Do you think the interface and user experience is what needs to improve a lot to be somewhat similar to what people are utilizing today to maybe where they don't know exactly what's happening, everything behind the scenes, but you know, it's very frictionless. Yeah, the, the experience today of using DeFi or even buying an NFT is painful <laughs> for most <laughs> people coming into the space. I think Coinbase is unlocked when the NFT marketplace is gonna drive a lot of mainstream users who've been on the sidelines trying to figure out what's happening. But what I think we're really gonna see is Taking the fintechs that are out there today, your Robinhood, Lending Club, SoFi, I think they're going to integrate DeFi natively in the back end. And that's where the crazy drive of users is going to start to come in. I think we're going to see an evolution play out kind of like the internet, where these companies are going to try to build their own at first. They're going to try to either build their own lending market, their own blockchain. And then they're going to start realizing that it's far more difficult and far more complex to do that rather than integrating the protocols that are currently there today like Compound or Aave or Uniswap. And the user bases are probably going to come from those companies that already have tens of millions to hundreds of millions of users that then just switch on DeFi. And all of a sudden, they can click some buttons and they're in the space. I mean, kind of like we've seen a little bit with PayPal, right? Being able to have access to crypto right away, onboarded millions of users, right? Same thing with Cash App. Yeah. <laughs> so we just we need a couple of institutions to keep bringing them in, right? That's it. That's all we need. All right. Well, let's leave it off there. You know, that was a great time we had today. Is there any uh, final comments that you want to leave off with? I would say follow Teller. We are at Use Teller on Twitter. All right. I appreciate uh, Ryan coming out today. Thank you. 100%. Thank you for having me.